When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nick Bagley became an expert on healthcare in a sort of backwards way. He studies administrative law, regulation, how the government works. And so I thought, well, gosh, maybe the Affordable Care Act would be an interesting statute to learn about. Maybe healthcare is a fruitful domain for people who do my kind of law. There didn't seem to be a lot of people doing it. He thought Obamacare would be a temporary academic diversion. I didn't realize, and I think very few people realized when the Affordable Care Act was adopted, just how contentious it would continue being. I think there was an assumption on both the left and the right that once it was fully implemented and the benefits started to flow, that it'd be very hard to dislodge and that, that frankly, the, the political system would kind of move on to other battles. And so far, at least, that hasn't seemed to happen. Um, it may still happen, but, but, but if so... I don't know when. The battle over health care continued this week. This time, the Affordable Care Act was being hashed out in a Louisiana courtroom. Long story short, Obamacare seems like it's about to have another near-death experience. Existential threats to health care have become so routine that it's easy to stop paying attention to them. What they mean, who they might impact... But Nick thinks about that all the time. Yeah, I mean, it was notable in oral argument just how little attention was paid to the practical effect of a judgment invalidating the Affordable Care Act. There was no discussion of how many people would lose coverage. There was no trace of any concern for the people who've grown to depend on the insurance that the Affordable Care Act makes available. There wasn't an, even any appreciation for just how deeply embedded the ACA has become in our healthcare system. It's not something you can just kind of lop off and everything will just continue as it was. It's it's part of the plumbing. And so if you rip it out, the whole healthcare system would seize up. Listening as this case played out, Nick kept coming back to this one thought again and again. Should we really be hashing out, you know, whether healthcare is available to the poor and the uninsured and protections for people with pre-existing conditions exist? Should we really be hashing that out in the courtroom? Or isn't that really a question that ought to be left to Congress? Of course, it's not like Congress hasn't tried to overturn Obamacare. They've voted to repeal or revamp it more than 50 times, but they haven't been able to see a repeal through. Instead, this massive law, which took months of intricate negotiation to implement, might now be upended by just a handful of judges and some very specious legal arguments. You know, I'm angry. I'm angry that arguments that are so clearly partisan have been taken seriously in the courts. I'm angry that Republicans believe that they can achieve in the courts. I see, I don't want to, for me to think that, you know, a handful of judges in this country could decide the fate of health insurance for millions of people, that they could do it with so little regard for the difficulties that people face and encounter in their daily lives that they could do so based on controversial legal theories that really 
uh, don't command broad assent in the legal community in general, but are sort of their pet theories. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I I shouldn't be angry on radio or on podcasts. I just feel like I'm I feel like I'm a sane person in a crazy world, and that and and but the world keeps getting crazier, and so I keep getting. So maybe I'm the one that's insane. You're not. (laughs) You're not. Today on the show, we're going to tell the story of what happened when the Affordable Care Act ended up in court this week. But we're also going to talk about the legal argument that got it there and why an argument that lawyers from across the political spectrum called deeply problematic may make its way to the Supreme Court. I'm Mary Harris. You are listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This case first got a lot of attention late last year when a Texas judge offered this sweeping opinion declaring the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. That ruling was a surprise to observers like Nick Bagley. So when the case was appealed to the Fifth Circuit, he was watching. Let's talk a little bit about the argument here and what it's all about. Basically, Republicans are arguing that if you get rid of the mandate, that means the whole law should fall. It feels a little bit like a game of Jenga where, you know, you have this giant tower of a law and they've found like the one brick you can remove and they're arguing the whole thing should come down. Yeah. And I think the analogy to a child's game is exactly right. This feels to me like a lawyer's trick. And Usually when lawyers make arguments that are too cute by half, the courts reject them. And I I have to say, it's it's a hard argument even to explain, much less to defend. But the way they see it is that you want to keep two things totally distinct, the command to buy insurance and the penalty for going without. They say, look, those two things are completely separate. And when the Supreme Court in 2012 upheld the individual mandate, what it said was that that the individual mandate was unconstitutional if you understood it as a as a command, but was perfectly constitutional if you understood it as a choice that came accompanied by a tax penalty. Last year, as part of the Trump administration's tax reforms, that penalty was negated. And with that, a bunch of red state AGs saw an opportunity. And they say, aha, when you zeroed out the mandate penalty, you left the naked command to buy insurance on the books. And that naked command to buy insurance, we don't think it's any longer a choice. We think now it's actually a command, something you must do. And Congress doesn't have the power to coerce people to buy insurance. And we should say here that lawyers on both the left and the right have come together and looked at this argument and said it's problematic. 
Problematic, yeah. I mean, absurd is another way to put it. I mean, if you understand what the plaintiffs are saying, they're saying that when Congress eliminated the penalty for going without insurance, they made the Affordable Care Act more coercive. And if you can figure that out, you're smarter than I am because it doesn't make any sense. I should roll you back a little bit and we should explain a little bit the sort of clown car of lawyers that was in the courtroom <laughs> because yeah. there were a lot of them and it wasn't who you would expect. Can you explain a little bit how the allegiances and how they'd shifted? Yeah. Initially, this was a lawsuit brought by a consortium of red state attorneys general against the federal government, against the United States, which means the Trump administration. So you've got red state AGs against the Trump administration. Then California and a consortium of blue states came forward and said, hey, look, you know, the red states have come to the courts and have asked for the, the invalidation of the entire ACA. We're interested in that case. We've got a, a, we've got a dog in that fight because we like the ACA. So we want to be allowed to intervene and to participate in the lawsuit. So now it is red states against Trump administration and blue states. But then the Trump administration decided to switch sides. And it said, you know what? We actually agree with the red states. We think that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, and we think that the rest of the Affordable Care Act has to fall with it. And so the Trump administration switched sides. So now it's red state AGs and the Trump administration on one side and the blue states on the other side. At that point, the House of Representatives, the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives, put its hand up and said, hey, if the Trump administration isn't going to defend this statute, we think we need to be part of the lawsuit in order to defend the statute. So we had now red state attorneys general and the Trump administration on one side and blue states and the House of Representatives on the other. Hmm. I wonder if you can just pull out a couple of moments that stood out to you, because I think the hard thing for a lot of people understanding hearings like this is that they're really technical and mm -hmm. You know, there's clearly something really important going on, but it can feel like listening to uh, some kind of proceeding in a different language. So I'm wondering that's if you exactly can, right. I'm wondering if you can be the translator here. Like, what did you see that stood out to you that the casual observer might not have noticed? Sometimes with oral arguments, you have to think that judges are really trying to accomplish two goals. The first thing they're trying to do is kind of test their own legal intuitions to to ask hard arguments of the side they disagree with in order to make sure that they kind of have thought through the case. The second thing judges use oral argument for is to communicate with other members of the panel about how they see the case and how they'd like to resolve the case. Um, and so oral argument can be used kind of to signal where the judges are coming from. So one of the things I was looking for is who are they asking the hardest questions to? Who are they attacking most fiercely? So when the state of California's attorney stood up, he was the first person to argue, it was telling just how much heat he immediately took over the merits of the case and over the question of severability, how aggressive the judges were in pressing arguments made by the state of Texas and other red state attorneys general, um, and how much they seemed to buy those arguments. And I might have then you know, not worried about it if the judges had asked similarly tough questions of the lawyer representing Texas. But they didn't. They let him stand up and talk for an extended period of time with very few interruptions. And when they asked him questions, they were frankly softballs. These were not the questions that went to the heart of the case. These were not the kinds of questions that judges who were skeptical of a legal position would ask. 
which led me and a lot of legal observers to think that these judges were coming into the case with a fairly pronounced preference for the arguments by the red state attorneys general. What you're saying is that a lot of lawyers, Republican lawyers, Democratic lawyers, looked at the argument that the red states and the Trump administration were putting forward, and they said, these are ridiculous. These don't make any sense. And yet, when these lawyers came in front of these judges in New Orleans, the judges seemed to be like, tell me more about that. that that's interesting. That's exactly right. These are not the kinds of arguments that you'd expect a court to entertain seriously, or at least I wouldn't, and most observers wouldn't either. So the very fact that they were given um, kind of a re- respectful hearing without getting a lot of pushback, that by itself is enormously telling. This is judicial activism masquerading as judicial restraint, right? The judges here are saying, hey, we couldn't possibly know what Congress meant to do when it zeroed out the penalty which is, of course, facetious. We know exactly what Congress meant to do. It meant to repeal the individual mandate because that's what they all said. They didn't mean to repeal the rest of the Affordable Care Act. They didn't have the votes to do it. So to think that this was their backdoor way of accomplishing that result is nutty. Hmm. You've mentioned how you think of this as judicial activism to the extreme. I wonder what that means about what happens now. Like, could the Fifth Circuit overturn the law completely themselves. Sure. At that point, though, the case would go up to the Supreme Court, which would have a responsibility and a duty to intervene at that point. You're sort of laying out this timeline, though, where we're looking at this case coming maybe back up to the Supreme Court right around 2020. Yeah. Well, and you could imagine the Supreme Court looking for ways to avoid having to hear the case during a fevered presidential election. Um, At the same time, right, they do have a duty to intervene on these big questions. And the Supreme Court may not feel like it has a choice and it may feel like it has to take the case. You know, I want to put the Fifth Circuit sort of in perspective here, right? The Fifth Circuit is a very conservative court. This case was filed in Texas in a deliberate effort to take advantage of a very conservative judiciary. And so we're seeing the results of that kind of forum selection, you know, some rulings that at least a lot of people think are pretty outlandish. And we might get one of those from the Fifth Circuit. But that's not going to be the end of the road. And what you want to do is ask, okay, look, whatever happens along the way and whatever kind of palpitations it it makes in our hearts, what will the Supreme Court do? And on that front, you know, we've had the ACA has, has faced two brushes with death or near death in the Supreme Court. And in both cases, Chief Justice Roberts said no. And those cases were way stronger than this case, like orders of magnitude stronger. So I find it hard to see him deciding that now, 10 years after the statute's adoption, it should be invalidated in whole or in part. I'm really glad you brought up John Roberts and the sort of open question of if this ACA case went to the Supreme Court, where would he come down? Because, you know, of course, the gossip is that Trump never forgave him for, you know, ruling to keep Obamacare going. And it seems to me that with all of these court cases, it's really setting up this mano a mano battle between Roberts in particular and Donald Trump. 
I think there's something to that, although I don't think Roberts will think about it quite that way. You know, I think it's easy to reduce all of these legal disputes as we're thinking about them to raw politics or to personalize them about, you know, Trump versus Roberts. And again, there's some truth to that. But I think when the chief looks at the case, he's going to say, what are the legal arguments here? Do I buy those legal arguments? Or do they make any sense? Do they hold together? On the margins, and those margins may be big, politics will affect his judgment, just like it affects everybody's judgment. But the quality of the legal arguments matters, too. I can't help but think about this case as sort of in a parallel track with the census question case, mm-hmm. where, you know, that case, John Roberts ruled, you know, that the census question shouldn't be there about citizenship. But now it's sort of being dragged back. And just like with this healthcare case, the DOJ is switching positions and lawyers are resigning. And that is sort of fraying the fabric of the Department of Justice. At least it looks like that from the outside. Looks like that from the inside, too. I was a Justice Department lawyer from 2007 to 2010. And the lawyers there are, they're good soldiers, right? They don't argue Republican positions or Democratic uh, positions. They defend the government in lawsuits during administrations of all political stripes. And the Justice Department is not you know, it's, it is an aggressive litigator. It takes positions all the time that push the boundaries of the law. So for the Justice Department to come in in the Affordable Care Act case and say, oh, we can't possibly defend it, it sends a shiver down my spine. It makes me think they no longer take seriously the duty to defend. And in the census case, the same way, when you see the Justice Department lawyers on the inside saying, wait a minute, we can't in good faith defend these arguments. These are these are arguments that that are so far beyond the pale. It's not just that we disagree with them. We think it's actually unethical for us to continue making these arguments. And for the Justice Department to respond to that by saying, oh, you know what, we'll find, <laughs> we'll find lawyers who don't feel the same ethical scruples as you do and push forward anyhow, again, it sends shivers down my spine. It's the weaponization of the Justice Department. It is the bastion of the rule of law within the executive branch, it's, it's an erosion of that bastion. Nicholas Bagley, thank you for telling me all about this. Always happy to do it. All right, that's the show. Today's episode was produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. If you're a new listener, please take a second, go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and mash that subscribe button. We love it when you do that. It helps us out in the ratings. It's great for a lot of reasons. You can also leave us a rating and review. We love that too. All right. This is the part of the show where I tell you what's going on over at our sibling podcast, The Gist. Today, all you need to know is that Mike Pesca is talking to an author who's going to reveal how you would go about bugging a cat with a listening device. You're kind of curious. I know you are. So go check it out. The Gist with Mike Pesca. All right. Enjoy your weekend. I will catch you Monday. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, 
and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.